Hello, good people. It's great to be back with you again. Now we are going to finally dive in, as promised, to Joseph Ratzinger's Introduction to Christianity. And I'm very glad that you're with me for this. This book was originally published in 1968 and then republished in 1969. In the year 2000, Joseph Ratzinger wrote a new preface for the book. And what he did is trace two lines of historical development between the time that he had originally written the book to the start of the new millennium. The two lines of historical development that he traces in this preface have to do with, first, Marxism, the impact of the student revolutions of 1968 and the impact of the 1989 collapse of the socialist regimes. The second line that he traces is the growth of interest in mysticism along with the challenges and the opportunities presented to Christianity by its encounter with other religions and especially with the great religious traditions of the East. Now he traces all of this in the context of the question of whether this is a propitious moment to offer or to re-offer an introduction to Christianity. In this video, I'm going to talk about his discussion of Marxism in his preface. And in the next video, we will talk about the mysticism and the Eastern religions. This is what Ratzinger has to say about the revolutions of 1968. Quote, the year 1968 marked the rebellion of a new generation, which not only considered post-war reconstruction in Europe as inadequate, full of injustice, full of selfishness and greed, but also viewed the entire course of history since the triumph of Christianity as a mistake and a failure. These young people wanted to improve things at last, to bring about freedom, quality, and justice. And they were convinced that they had found the way to this better world in the mainstream of Marxist thought, unquote. Now, what I want to mention here about this is that he is writing in a European context. And if you're listening to this and you're in the United States and you think back to what happened in the 1960s with student revolutionary movement, it's more likely that you tend to connect that to the idea of the anti-war movement and the resistance to the draft, as well as all the turmoil of the civil rights movement. In the American context, in the context of the United States, that is what we tend to think of at that time. Although there were certainly sympathetic elements to communism among the people in that movement. But you do not have to be sympathetic to communism to think that the draft um, needed to be rethought. It was just chewing through a generation. I remember being in school at that time in, um, in middle school or junior high school and high school and having, um, having fellow students who had older siblings that were in the war in Vietnam that were fighting. And the war itself was being broadcast on the television sets all the time. Every evening, um, Americans were being subjected to the uh, images of all of the carnage of that war. 
it was quite distressing. On top of that, you also did not have to be, a, be sympathetic to Marxism to think that, um, or to be, I would say, a bit impatient for implementation of civil rights in light of the changes that had already happened in the law during the um, Johnson administration, for example. Um, there were already a lot of legal changes, but their implementation throughout society seemed to be quite slow to a number of people. In the European context, things were different. It's not that there were not war protests over the Vietnam War in other countries, there were. But in Europe, especially in France, the 1968 Student Rebellion was communist to the core. It was seeking a communist overthrow of the government of France. In fact, the government of France was quite destabilized at this time by this uh, student-led revolution, which then um, encompassed the workers of France and huge strikes. And in fact, the president of France, Charles de Gaulle, had to flee the country for a while. The, the um, government of France was very destabilized by this revolution. It was not the case in the United States. There was a lot of turmoil in the streets, a lot of social unrest, but there was really no threat to the stability of the government of the United States at that time. So remember, Ratzinger's writing in a European context, and he's looking back on this as a European, living through this time of turmoil. So we might ask the question, what is it that made Marxism so attractive to these young people in Europe, who even though they were living in the shadow of um, the Soviet Union, nevertheless were attracted to this ideology. Here is what Ratzinger has to say about that. Quote, basically the Marxist doctrine of salvation in several differently orchestrated variations, of course, had taken a stand as the sole ethically motivated guide to the future that was at the same time consistent with the scientific worldview, unquote. So that was the attraction. The attraction was that it was an ethical system and also one that was supposed to be scientific. And of course, we're dealing in, in a time frame when being scientific and um, having a materialist worldview being able to support whatever you say by science is very, very important. So that made it um, attractive to them. It has an odd paradoxical effect, though, because the ethical motivations that were behind Marxist ideology, the idea, these ideas of equality and justice, permitted an ethical suspension for the purpose of the revolution. That became almost immediately apparent in every mass of people swept up in the revolutionary fervor. Ratzinger says this, quote, it was about justice for all, about peace, about doing away with unfair master-servant relationships and so on. They believed that they had to dispense with ethical principles for the time being, and that they were allowed to use terror as a beneficial means to these noble ends. Now, this is a very important thing to understand about the way this revolutionary mindset works. It's ethically motivated, but there's this idea that 
only until we get the workers paradise, only until we've finished redistributing the wealth, only until we've seized the means of production. Until then, we can suspend ethics and we can commit murder. We can uh, deprive people of their property. All of these things that normally would be in just under natural law considered to be wrong. They felt that they could suspend for this greater good. So we have the situation when we start out with, for example, land reform to liberate small farmers or seizure of the means of production to liberate factory workers. And time after time, as these things happen and play themselves out in different countries, we end up with a country run by thugs. Um, Ratzinger in the book mentions the problems in Colombia, which ended up in the hands of drug lords after a communist revolution. We see it happening now in Venezuela. Um, we've seen the same thing in other countries, various countries in South America and Africa. Speaking of South America, there is another element that enters into the situation in South America. It actually was present also in Europe to some extent. When the students were revolting, that in some of the countries in Europe, they were carrying signs that said, the 1968 students need 1968 priests. The idea was that they wanted the endorsement of the church and the assistance of the clergy in their revolutionary efforts, and some of the clergy did take part. Um, uh, Ratzinger says that liberation theology, this attempt to merge Marxism with Christian doctrine as a new fusion was like a lightning bolt, but the real fires it set were in South America. Which leads to a question, wouldn't this synthesis between Marxism and Christianity be a way to make Christianity relevant? Wouldn't it make people understand that Christianity was really on the side of the oppressed and was really on the side of making beneficial changes in the world. Would it possibly be something that would make Christianity more attractive if it was linked up with Marxism? So in, as he goes through this discussion, Ratzinger takes a little bit of a detour to talk about Vatican II, the Second Vatican Council. And this is what he says, quote, this is precisely what the Second Vatican Council had intended to endow Christianity once more with the power to shape history. The 19th century had seen the formulation of the opinion that religion belonged to the subjective private realm and should have its place there, but precisely because it was to be categorized as something subjective it could not be a determining factor in the overall course of history and in the epical decisions that had to be made as part of it. Now, following the council, it was supposed to become evident again that the faith of Christians embraces all of life, that it stands in the midst of history and in time and has relevance beyond the realm of subjective notions. Christianity, at least from the viewpoint of the Catholic Church, was trying to emerge again from the ghetto to which it had been relegated since the 19th century and to become involved once more in the world at large. There was a particular phrase that was used 
in association with the Council of Vatican II in the 1960s. And it was the idea that the church was opening its windows to the world, which led to all kinds of jokes and questions about what may have flown out of the windows or flown into the windows. But the point was that the church wanted to take a dialogic stance vis-a-vis -vis the world to um, have the attitude toward the world that the church wants to listen to you. The church wants to hear your concerns. The idea being that if the church listens to you and hears what you have to say, you will in turn listen to the church. So that's based on an idea that um, you may not be familiar with even if you're Catholic. So let me lay this out. It's kind of a multi-layered um, concept. And it, it goes like this. The soul is the life principle of the body of a person. In the church, the Holy Spirit is the life principle of the church. And in the world, the members of the church are supposed to function as a life principle. In other words, it's something that gives life to the world. And so that's a, it's kind of a stacking of this um, functional idea of something that gives life. And if you look back through history and you look back through the history of the Catholic Church, and there's lots of things to decry, but oh boy, if you look back through history, there are such tremendous advances and tremendous assistance that the Catholic Church has given to the world in the sense of, um, creating an educational system, creating the university system, hospital systems, orphanages, um, all of these things that transform the world. So that's the point. It's not that the church would be standing above humanity, ordering people around, but it's the idea of joining with humanity in addressing our common concerns and providing the resources of the church to the world for the addressing of those concerns. It's kind of like what um, G.K. Chesterton said. He said, we're all in the same boat and we're all seasick. <laughs> so it's a matter of joining with our fellow human beings and saying, how can we address these problems? So that's the question then uh, that Ratzinger is, is opening up is, was this liberation theology idea, this idea of merging Marxism and Christianity, would that be the way that the world would begin to see the church as having resources to address real problems that people had in the world? He goes on to say, quote, the theology of liberation seemed for more than a decade to point the way by which the faith might again shape the world because it was making common cause with the findings and worldly wisdom of the hour, unquote. The idea is here that maybe dressing Jesus in uh, jungle camo fatigues and parading him as a kind of um, revolutionary leader would in be an inspiration to people. And then Ratzinger goes on to say, quote, it must be admitted by means of this remarkable synthesis, Christianity had stepped once more onto the world stage and had become an epic-making message. It is no surprise that the socialist states took a stand in favor of this movement. More noteworthy is the fact that even in the capitalist countries, liberation theology was the darling of public opinion. 
to contradict it was viewed positively as a sin against humanity and mankind, even though no one naturally wanted to see the practical measures applied in his own situation because he, of course, had already arrived at a just social order, unquote. So I'm going to let that somewhat droll, somewhat sarcastic <laughs> remark stand right there and get back to the question of whether what Ratzinger calls this remarkable synthesis had really made Christianity relevant. And Ratzinger answers, no, because this synthesis almost immediately collapsed. Even with new biblical interpretation, even with the adoption of revolutionary liturgies and the, um, the uh, acquiescence of a number of priests and religious people in these movements, even with identifying Jesus Christ as the embodiment of the suffering and oppressed people, it simply would not hold up. Well, why not? The reason is that Marxism is not just a theory, but it's a praxis. It does not seek a truth, but it seeks through praxis, that is through a practice, to make a truth. To make a truth through political and economic action. If it is a, an issue of salvation by economics and politics, then humans can do it because that's the sphere of human action. Um, he mentions Aristotle's definition of man as a political animal. If it's a matter of human action, then what do they need God for? God is just not practical. There's no need to even engage metaphysical question. Ratzinger goes on to say, quote, not as though God had been denied, not on your life. He simply was not needed in regard to the reality that mankind had to deal with. God had nothing to do. Now, I've had conversations with people who really tend to have this attitude, especially, I won't say so much right now, but in years past, I've had conversations with people about religion and had them take the attitude that they weren't they they weren't interested in metaphysical questions they weren't really interested in whether there is a god or you know what the what his nature might be or anything like that but they basically look at religion as like why would i want to complicate my life with that i'm doing fine i'm getting along fine and um so to them, you can see that the idea is that God really hasn't got anything to do in their life because they're handling the whole thing. After making that statement, Ratzinger suddenly turns in a perhaps unexpected direction. Quote, one is struck by this point. That's the point that God has nothing to do. One is struck by this point and suddenly wonders, was that the case only in liberation theology? Or was this theory able to arrive at such an assessment of the question about God that the question was not a practical one for the long overdue business of changing the world, only because the Christian world thought much the same thing? Or rather, 
lived in much the same way without reflecting on it or noticing it. Has not Christian consciousness acquiesced to a great extent without being aware of it in the attitude that faith in God is something subjective, which belongs in the private realm and not in the common activities of public life where in order to be able to get along, we all have to behave now as if there were no God. Now, if you've been listening to Jordan Peterson, that's going to attract your attention. Because what does he always say when asked whether he believes in God? He says, I act as if I believe in God. What Retzinger is saying here is that the reason the world saw God as impractical is because Christians were already behaving as if there were no God. You see, this is one thing I like about Joseph Ratzinger. He's not going to put up with any facile finger pointing. We Christians aren't going to be able to get in some sort of holy huddle and point at the world and go, oh, look at those bad people out there. Because he's going to bring it right back and say, what about you? What about you, Christians? How have you been behaving? How have you been living? We cannot expect the unbelieving world to behave better, to behave more like they believe in God than Christians are, right? Ratzinger goes on to talk about what happened when the whole thing kind of fell apart. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, the year 1989 brought the surprising collapse of the socialist regimes in Europe, which left behind a sorry legacy of ruined land and ruined souls. 1989 brought with it no new answers. Rather, it deepened the general perplexity and nourished skepticism about great ideals. People no longer trust grand moral promises, and after all, that is what Marxism had understood itself to be, unquote. So what about the question at the, once the, um, once the socialist system fell apart, what about the question then of the practicality of God? Would people be open when they saw that system collapse? Ratzinger says, yet God is practical and not just some theoretical conclusion of a consoling worldview that one may adhere to or simply disregard. We see that today in every place where the deliberate denial of him has become a matter of principle and where his absence is no longer mitigated at all. For at first, when God is left out of the picture, everything apparently goes on as before. Mature decisions and the basic structures of life remain in place, even though they have lost their foundations. But as Nietzsche describes it, once the news really reaches people that God is dead and they take it to heart, then everything changes. And so then Ratzinger goes into the questions of how human beings treat other human beings in the face of this idea that God is dead. And he makes, a, he makes a, an interesting juxtaposition between two things. He talks about the growth of human trafficking. And at the time that he's writing, 
he's especially mentioning the trafficking of girls and women from Albania into Europe. And then he talks about the heart, the growing of embryos and fetuses in order to harvest their organs, especially for those who could afford this kind of service. And this commodification of human beings, and even to the point of viewing a human being as something that could be manufactured for the use of someone else, raises the question, what is man to man? How practical might God be in answering that question? Perhaps Christianity could answer some of the perplexity that was left in the world with the fall of these socialist systems. Perhaps it has the resources the world needs to address some of these questions, to answer the question of what man should be to man. But Ratzinger notes sadly that in 1989, quote, anyone who expected that the hour had come again for the Christian message was disappointed. Although the number of believing Christians throughout the world is not small, Christianity failed at that historical moment to make itself heard as an epic-making alternative. This brings us up to the second strand of Ratzinger's reflections. The failure of Christianity at that moment did not prevent there being a resurgence of spirituality, but instead people began in large numbers to look elsewhere than Christianity. And that is what we will take up in the next video when we talk about mysticism and the encounter with the Eastern religions. Thank you for being with me as we look at this very interesting reflection by one of the great minds, great theological minds of our time. And please remember to subscribe if you want to keep up with me as we start going through this book. Until we're together again, Treat yourself as though you are someone you are responsible for helping because you are responsible and so am I. And together we are making the world. Bye for now. Thanks for watching.